This time, we're taking a look at the post-apocalyptic class war climate change thriller Snowpiercer. And along the way, we ask, how has South Korean cinema changed Hollywood? Exactly what box does this movie fall into? And would it be fun to live on this train? You suffer from the misplaced optimism of this podcast. This is Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hey folks, welcome back to another fantastic episode of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. I am one of your co-hosts, the train conductor, Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host. I am the misguided revolutionary leader, Chris Rupp. <laughs> I like that. Yes, I like that a lot. The misguided revolutionary leader. Uh, it's so fascinating to watch uh, Curtis in this movie kind of be propelled and move forward by events and influences that he doesn't see are really there. So it's it's a fun little, I guess, uh, disheartening journey, I should say, to to watch him go on. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're diving in. Absolutely. I, I this this film. Welcome, folks. Uh, we this film Snowpiercer is just fantastic. As Chris uh, has said, there's layers upon layers, and when you think you know what's going on, they pull an M Night Shyamalan on you, but not nearly as um, ham-fisted as M Night Shyamalan's films are. No, not at all. And uh, I mean, I'm. I was saving this movie to watch for this project, and I'm so glad I did. Like, I, I mean, I, I didn't even know what it was about. I just knew it was uh, in a post-apocalyptic world, survivors living on a train as it goes around the globe. I didn't know, you know, what any sort of a deeper synopsis other than that. So, it, yeah. So let's provide our own brief synopsis if we can, sure. just so. Anyone who's unfamiliar can you know, dive right in. So, in an effort to combat climate change, a suspicious compound called CW7 is sprayed into the atmosphere. However, this causes a second ice age and forces the last remnants of humanity to live on a train that circumnavigates the globe on an annual basis. And after nearly 20 years of living on this train, the residents of the tail section decide to revolt and take over the train in the hopes of a... I guess, brighter future, less cold version, less cold future. <laughs> right. And that's a, that's a good hope, right? To, to better their lives, to get a little taste of that delicious sushi that they long for. There's a very uh, Les Mis French Revolution feel to this sort of revolt led by Curtis because it's the, they, their main goal is like, well, we got to get to the front of the train. Like, okay, well, what's the goal? Like, get to the front of the train. Like, okay, what do we do after that? Let's get to the front of the train. <laughs> it's like a dog chasing a car. You're like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? It's, you know, it's, I would say, a little bit misguided. But in their minds, they hoped that by getting control of the train, they could, I guess, uh, shift the uh, the status quo, the class, right? Because it's one of those typical classism films where it's the haves versus the have-nots. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, and I think this is pretty indicative or pretty much a hallmark of uh, the writer and director Bon Chu Ho's filmography. Like this is 
this is basically his oeuvre. This is what he goes into is these class divisions and people who are trying to either move up in their social circle or try to change their circumstances by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And he's, I will say, in my opinion, I, I really love his film. His his style, he's one of those, in my opinion, directors, a modern director that he's really like, he has a style, he has a message, themes in all of his films, and he makes them very well. Like, I think really he is one of the top-notch guys of the past decade. So, because uh, I've seen like Parasite, Okja, and Snowpiercer, and I'm like, wow, these films are all very similar, and like, they really just... When you watch them, you almost feel like you, you, you change a little bit. At least for me, I feel like I've, I've changed a little bit or I want to be a better person. <laughs> I don't know about you because you waited to see this film. And how did you feel afterwards? Yeah, I feel I felt hopeful at the end of it. Like, um, But I also felt a bit bummed out because I didn't feel like this whole revolution accomplished what it's really set out to do. I mean, all it really did was just kill everybody i mean we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves i mean with that i mean but i actually have not seen any of uh bang juho's other films i mean i uh i was firmly in the camp in the in the oscars from uh 2019 that once upon a time in hollywood was the best picture of that year and was very very disappointed when it didn't win so i've most i have not seen parasite mostly out of protest but oh. <laughs> after seeing snowpiercer i think i'm uh definitely reconsidering uh, my stance on that i i would absolutely um recommend it because i also in 2019 19 i think we did like an oscar so force fed uh episode i was well i was in a much different place in my life where i was much more just like bitter and pessimistic and just not doing well and now like in hindsight and reflecting like especially this film thinking of his other films and revisiting parasite i totally um i love it i think it's such a good film uh, just one of these like it just has a statement and not to poo poo once upon a time i think that's such a good film as well with character story classic like it's so hard as we find with you know with oscars and which film is the greatest but i totally recommend chris give it a shot and maybe we can talk about it one day <laughs> <laughs> we'll see who is, we'll see yeah so who's so who's in this film um i well i know uh as curtis our lead guy it's chris evans and initially when they marketed this film it was like after the Avengers came out, I think the year before. So I do remember heavy Chris said, look, it's the guy from the Avengers, you know, <laughs> you should come see this movie. But who else? I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the poster features a very tall Chris Evans brandishing an axe. And then right on the other side of the poster, you have, you know, one or otherwise would be considered like legends of cinema or really great actors. Now you got John Hurt as Gilliam. Ed Harris plays the 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 conductor or engineer uh, Wilford. You have Tilda Swinton as Minister Mason, who at this point in her career has already won an Academy Award. Oh, yeah. um, you also have Octavia Spencer as Tanya. I think she was uh, also just coming off of winning an Oscar for mm -hmm. the help. Uh, we get uh, uh, a, a person who has a, a that guy quality, Jamie Bell as Edgar. And we also had some... Uh, so actually, for... I know the uh, what's the guy's name? Sang, 
or uh, Sang Kan Ho is the dude. He plays uh, Nam Gung Ningso, who's basically the security guy on the train. And I guess a crackhead. <laughs> that guy was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, he's the security chief, or he designed the the layout of the train. So he gets busted out in order to lead this uh, revolutionary group through the train. And then also playing his daughter, we've got Goa Song as Yona. And I guess she's been, um, she was in uh, 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 Bong's previous film, The Host. Okay. Okay. Which I've heard about. I've heard it's really freaking good. Yeah, a bit a bit difficult to find in American streaming since uh, that's still a, a very much a Korean production. And this mm-hmm. uh, Snowpiercer was Bung's English language debut film, mm-hmm. but it's still, I mean, even this is still pretty difficult to find on streaming. Like it was on Netflix for the longest time, recently went off, and now I think it's uh, free to stream on Peacock. But uh, I had to shell out the four dollars on Amazon to rent this for a couple of days. Yeah, it is, and. I remember, yeah, I remember this being on Netflix for a while. So I also, like yourself, found it a little bit challenging to find. I did want to ask you, did you were there parts in this film where it was totally spoken in like Korean, and there was no subtitles? Yeah, I mean, for the yeah for the briefest uh, moments, like there is no, there are no English subtitles, and I think that that's certainly something that Bong likes to do in his films when he has to provide translation or when somebody is speaking in a foreign language. Yeah. Because I think, because, I mean, somebody will speak in their language and then about 10 seconds later we're given, you know, a pretty good clue as to what they were talking about because it's it's very frenetic. Like the action just bounces from one sequence to the next. And he's usually provided some sort of dialogue lead-in from um, either uh, Song's character or Goal's character. Mm-hmm. Oh, without without a doubt. It's very well, it's just it's so different. I would say uh, why I asked because I was curious. Yeah. How you felt about that? Because I well, at first I wasn't sure if like, oh, is this pirated movie? (laughs) Just I got the bootleg copy where they didn't have subtitles. But when I um, as they continued on with the discussion um, in the movie, like I believe at the end, um, Nam Gung and his daughter, like they have a little dialogue where you don't know like what they're saying but you can kind of figure out as you said and I actually really enjoyed those sequences because it was like as a viewer I'm just watching things unfold but it also played into the idea of like the diversity in the future right different cultures being on the train and not understanding right but still having that common bond of like achieving the goal getting to the other side and even if we can't understand the language we can still we're there for the cause and we can figure it out in time so that was kind of neat very interesting director choice very counter hollywood well yeah and, it, and it's beneficial always to have an international cast i mean more than just having you know ken watanabe be cast in your film you have a truly <laughs> international cast where they do speak in their native languages mm-hmm. and it's it's to the film's benefit like you were saying like this really kind of enforces the idea that the world was a a cultural melting pot prior to everything freezing over and the last what 100 200 survivors being herded onto this train that just endlessly circles the globe mm-hmm. it it's just it's an interesting idea too 
of like how the whole train sequence started. Like we're trying to combat global warming by cooling the planet, but as typical human fashion, we didn't know. And against like the urgings, I think it was Wilford, the train guy, the 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 dude who's on the train that built the train and everything, he didn't believe that the global cooling would work. He thought that it would actually ruin the planet, but everyone was like, no, you're wrong, Wilford. So he built the train and ended up being the quote-unquote savior of the uh, last humans. <laughs> but I found that was kind of interesting. You know, how we got to the train is acts of kindness. We're trying to save the planet, but it still comes to our demise. It just reminded me so much of an episode from Futurama where in an effort to do the to cool down the earth instead of spraying a chemical compound in the atmosphere they drop a gigantic ice cube in the ocean <laughs> and that cools off the earth you know once every year i know that's such a great episode you're hilarious same vibes here same vibes here with all that same vibes we just we just use some febreze in the air and it just didn't work Ah, that's funny i heard um to get a little bit into the back history of like the production and casting uh chris evans they had to like hide his uh muscles because you know he he was still doing captain america at this time fresh so he was jacked and so i guess what they did was put on like really big clothes on him so it would make him look skinny right because these people are not really nourished living in the back of the train eating like blocks of crushed up bugs well, and it kind of, yeah, and it definitely reinforces the whole, like, nature of living in this tail section, because obviously, if somebody, if they are making homemade clothing, they're not going to take the time to appropriately measure somebody, they'll just do a, a rough estimate of how their, their arms look and their inseams and all that, and then make the clothes from there, so it really kind of, it gives the movie, at least in terms of costume design, a sort of lived-in quality to the world. Mm -hmm. It does, and I think it's like... To the benefit of the director, he just focuses so much time in, like, creating this really unique dystopian train atmosphere. Like, even the little ball, you know, they're trying to negotiate to get them the protein from the kid, and they're like, we'll give you a ball. And, like, the ball is just this ratty old thing. But, you know, it's it's I appreciate that because he could have just, like, thrown in a basketball and just spray-painted it black. But no, he actually took the time to be like, no, these people, if they wanted to make stuff, it would be like out of their clothes. And it would look like garbage. Yeah. And you definitely see this improvisation really kind of take hold. I mean, they're using cans as sort of like storage lockers and just basically scraping by with whatever they can you know, get their holds on, get their hands on just just to get by in their day to day lives. And that's on top of having to worry about somebody from the, the front section coming in and snatching up one of their kids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because, yeah, Wilford, he, well, I guess, yeah, we can get into, so, like, they they would steal kids to, like, put in school, right? And then uh, to also work the train, the engine, because, like, the engine would break down, pieces would be able to be replaced, so they had to, like, have a four-year-old sit in the engine, like literally get in the engine and like with their hands turn knobs and keep the engine going or else the train would crash. How terrible That's, is that? That is an awful existence. Like, and also like the movie leads off with that, like with the with two little children being snatched away. 
And we don't know why. We don't figure it out until the very end of the film when we see poor Timmy in this, in uh, that little compartment in the floor, just constant, consistently moving some part because Wilford just casually says, oh, that part went extinct uh, years ago. And now we just, you know, pop in a kid there to... <laughs> <laughs> to serve as a machine part. I love how Wilford this whole time, he's like so nonchalant. Like the whole thing. Like It's like, dude, you're literally kidnapping people's children and using them for your like selfish self-will. Like, well, the greater good. Everyone has a purpose. It's, it's fine. <laughs> what? Yeah, and he's just so <laughs> blasé about it. Like he's so matter of fact and has an explanation for everything. It was just so, so infuriating watching this movie like it's the the class divisions are obvious right from the start and like especially like in our in our culture now where it seems like billionaires you know they get on twitter or something and say an opinion and people fall in line with it but this is the kind of wealth and opulence that i can't stand Mm -hmm. where they flaunt it in front of other people's faces and have to continually remind other people of just their place and their lot in life and it's so infuriating because after you know their their children are taken away the the father andrew he's literally punished for acting like a human being and trying to protect his child yeah and it's like they're just they're punished for wanting to be treated like human beings like i.e you know wanting to keep their children side uh, you know close to them and having to eat decent food and it's just oh it's so Oh, it pissed me off so much watching the first half hour of this movie so much. It's so barbaric. Like, the guy, they punish him for... What did... He, like, threw a shoe, I think, at Tilda Swanson's head. Or, no, 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 at, like, the blonde chick's head. And so they stuck his arm outside in the sub-zero temperatures and then broke it with a hammer when it was frozen. That's messed up. That's so messed up. Like, dude... (laughs) that's just that's so flaunted that's like medieval time torture right you're out of line whack you'll lose a limb yeah it used to be like if you stole something like you get your hand cut off but even that was the most extreme of punishment and it's just like you stick his arm outside for seven minutes just so it freezes enough so you can smash it to bits it's insane very insane very yeah you're absolutely right it's the haves and haves not and reinforcing that level of fear to control people. And we see that a lot throughout this film, those themes of power, control, corruption, and trying to, you know, manifest your destiny and for what people think Curtis believes is a virtuous moral, you know, reason. He wants to give, he wants to be, he's tired of being stuck in the back of the train. He wants to get to the front, share the wealth. But along the way, he just we see these choices that he makes and like as the curtains unveil a little bit more, you realize that it's not so black and white, a lot of sacrifice. I think Curtis is definitely railing against the, the control that is beyond his control. Like in the, 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 the wealthy people just control everything on this train. They control the food, how they get supplies and even the information, because when we get to that classroom scene, we find out that the children aren't learning their ABCs and one, two, three. No. They're learning. They're they're basically learning propaganda BS is what they're learning. Yeah. Yeah. You felt that. You saw that. T- I felt that. I was like, dude, this reminds me of like the states. <laughs> like I remember learning about um, capitalism 
<laughs> when I was a kid in like very similar fashions where we're like watching tapes or it's like, this is good. Communism is bad. <laughs> this promotes growth and equality. It's just like, oh my gosh. Also reminded me of religion. <laughs> well, yeah. And Wilford is definitely um, deitized, I guess is the word. Yeah. Because like, he's, the, the children are led through these chants, you know, Wilford is the greatest, blah, 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 <laughs> and all that stuff. Like, he gives us food. He built this train. And yeah. we're shown a, a biopic of Wilford's young life. It's it's so crazy, the propaganda that these children are being indoctrinated into. Yeah. Yeah. They, I loved it. And it was it was so, like, on the nose with the director. He really was – he was pointing out, you know – the haves and haves nots, the first world countries and how we continue to manufacture the belief like that we instill in first world people like, oh, you know, we're going to stay in power. We're doing this. You know, the kids were like making comments about the train, the back of the train people being lazy. And, and it was just a real commentary of like what upper and even middle think about the lower and vice versa, because the lower class people have comments about the upper as well. And in the end, we just kind of it's it's like we all realize that they're all people in some sense, like they're all similar, but different based on their classes. I mean, and what's even crazier to me, and this is something that we briefly talked about before we started recording, is that this is the end of the world. So people's wealth and privilege and power really kind of means nothing in the end of days. And it's baffling to me that people want to hold on to their wealth and power, you know, with every fiber of their strength. And but they don't want to realize that it's gone. Yeah. And and I, there's just no point in keeping the class divisions like they are. And I mean, this train could be a very equitable and great uh, utopia here in the end of days. But because people want to hold on to the old way of life so hard they they're using this desire then to oppress and control the other people living in the tail section cuz they're afraid of acknowledging that oh the old way is gone and i'm now just you know a regular nobody here at the end of the world mhm uh, everything is essentially meaningless that i thought from before my whole illusion of power and success and wealth was is meaningless absolutely Absolutely. And and I know Wilford like tries to explain it in a way with purpose, like um, when he kind of unveils it to Curtis that there is always a revolution. Like every several years they have a revolution because the back of the train overpopulates. Right. So in order to control the population of the train so they don't yeah have a bunch of people starving or go back to cannibalistic ways, they have a revolution. Uh, manifested between Wilford and Gilliam, and then they end up killing a bunch of people. <laughs> that was that's pretty that's pretty wild. When he unveiled that, I was like, "Oh my god!" It like dropped the mic, you know? Yeah, like every few years, a bunch of people decide to organize a revolution, and a bunch of them get killed. And I mean, it just got me thinking. Like Curtis is probably what in his early thirties um, at the mm -hmm. time when this movie takes place. So, and they've been on the train now for 18 years. Uh, so, I mean, Curtis had to have wound up on the train as a fairly young man, like during his formative years. And he had to have seen some pretty messed up stuff during those early years. 
Oh, yeah, right? Because his monologue was about eating people, you know, because they didn't have food in the first month. It was it was chaos, so they ended up having to resort to eating, like he said, babies taste the best. That's messed up. This dude has serious PTSD. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy the effect that trauma has, especially on somebody who's, you know, go, growing up in your formative years during trauma, like... Like, I know a lot of people, oh, kids are resilient. They'll bounce back. It's like, yeah, but then this stuff comes up later again in therapy when they're 30 years old and they're wondering <laughs> why, you know, they're trying to avoid dark places or loud noises, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I have experience of that now. And you can see that in the film, how it manifests. Because, um, like, even with Curtis, like, you find out later when he does his monologue that uh, Edgar, who, you know, Jamie Bell is kind of his right-hand man throughout it. Uh, Edgar at this incredible action scene, actually, during New Year's on the train where it's like they have a bunch of guys with axes facing them and it's like dark and they have night vision goggles, whatever. Um, Curtis chooses to sacrifice Edgar, like let Edgar die because he doesn't want uh, Tilda Swanson's character to get away. And so he makes that choice. And then you find out later that Curtis actually killed Edgar's mother when he was a baby because he wanted, he was hungry and he wanted to eat her. And so like he felt tied to Curtis or uh, Edgar because he wanted to take care of him is due to guilt. But then he lets the kid die because in his mind, it's just it's so much more important to get to Wilford than to even like this guy that's been causing him all this guilt that he's been taking care of because he murdered the mother. It's just it's it really shows that um, how trauma can impact us and just like the choices we make, you know, like that just yeah, that just felt like one big betrayal though, yeah. to have Curtis, you know, just let Edgar die. You know, you know, when it looked like they were going to forge together and accomplish their goals, you know, as um, I guess leader and follower. But then Curtis turns his literally turns his back on Edgar and lets him die. He, he, he absolutely, he literally does. And that, I guess, poses the question. Cause when I saw that and when, you know, I heard the monologue, the star Trek <laughs> thing to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And so I was like, well, man, that's a hard sacrifice. <laughs> I wouldn't want to make that sacrifice. Am I going to let my best, my best friend die because of the needs of the people. And then you find out, that it was all a sham and you let your best friend die for nothing. Yeah. Let's him die for nothing and totally change the trajectory of this young man's life. Yeah. Based twice. <laughs> twice. <laughs> in an immeasurable way by killing his mother and then also letting him die. It's so, it also speaks to how, you know, the, the destruction that's caused in the wake of a single minded goal. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Curtis, all he wants to do is get to the front of the train, and he doesn't care what has to happen along the way for that to happen. Absolutely. As long as he gets to the front of the train. Absolutely. And that can speak to um, bounds about like ideologies and like when we think we're doing the things that we believe is going to help people. Are will number one, are we willing to take the risks and think about the amount of pain that it's going to cause other people 
the sacrifices, but also at what point do we become like the monster ourselves, you know? Because at the end of it, everyone dies, literally everyone that went to with Curtis that revolted, which was nearly the whole back of the train, is done. They kill everyone except him and the two uh, Korean, like the, the drug, the security guy and his daughter. And Curtis still is like, he, he's like beating the crap out of the security man. He's like, open the door. I have to know. And it's just like, whoa, dude, like everyone's dead. <laughs> Are you really so stuck on getting to the end? Despite all the pain and lot, you know, it's at what point do we become mad with our own devices? And, and, and this is it just reminded me so much of then this is something I talk about quite frequently on the show. Um, the Last of Us, the, the great video game series by Naughty Dog. And it really especially the second game, it really explores the effects of trauma and years of stress can take on a person and you hit it right on the head the choices that people make and having to watch themselves become a monster and what that does to your psyche is is staggering and and it was all for nothing because we see yona and timmy walk out into the frozen wasteland and contrary to what we were told life is not extinct in the frozen wasteland because there's a happy little polar bear that's looking at him going "Ooh, meat (laughs) <laughs> right i'm hungry <laughs> yeah because <laughs> when i saw the polar bear well at first i was like there's no way these kids are gonna survive you know and then when you see the polar bear it's like there's no way in hell these kids are gonna survive no that polar bear is gonna eat them because it probably hasn't seen meat in 15 years and you know <laughs> wants some fresh human to munch on right i know though the director did say that the kids survive and they repopulate, but I don't know. I'm going to say for logistic, <laughs> logical, re- uh. <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely right. It's everything gets destroyed. Curtis chooses to blow up the train <laughs> because, and I don't know if he does it because um, he can't live with himself or if he realizes that it's just like a continuous thing that's going to keep going on and on and on forever. Like um, in Looper. Unless, like, he chooses to make the choice. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's both. Maybe he, you know, after 18 years of doing just awful things to survive, maybe he doesn't want to continue on living in this world where he would have to continue doing awful things to ensure the survival of this train. Or maybe it's just a way of destroying the system that he's helped to uh, perpetuate. You know, yeah. by, playing, by playing into Gilliam's and, Cur- and Wilford's schemes of revolution... He doesn't want to be a part of that anymore. He doesn't want to be a puppet. And what better way than get rid of the system than just eliminate it entirely? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because he can't go back. There's no way that he can go back now because Wilford's at offering him to be the new conductor. And that's what I was thinking. I'm like, where where is he going to go Like from here? He knows all the secrets of the train. He can't go back. Could he really live with himself and be the next like Gilliam talking to Wilford? No, there's no way. Because the difference between him and those guys are he still has somehow that moral conscience in him that drives him, but so behind so much pain. I think if Curtis were elevated to the leader of the train, he would certainly make changes to make it a more fair and equitable environment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe he would run into the same problem that Wilford and Gilliam ran into. It's like, oh, the train is getting too crowded. Like, what do we do? 
Mm-hmm. And then we've got like a Logan's Run type situation on here. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's like the thing, because then you have to have institute policies on the train where it's like, well, we can't have too many children. You know, you can't, you know, <laughs> do the one child policy or something. Because, But then at the same token, you still have the problem with needing a four to five year old to operate in the train. So you're still having the child, you know, using like children, like kids, like like almost toddlers, damn near toddlers operating the train. So it's like, I mean, I love it. I love having the kids be in charge of the train because that was such a great director choice, you know, because he's um, commentating on how first world, you know, we have the beautiful train that operates and runs around the world like us, you know, um, Amazon, Google, etc., Apple. But to operate these brilliant corporate companies that keep our societies in line and running, it's on the backs of these children in third world countries. So I mean, it's so it's so fantastic. <laughs> like his he is so good at themes and I love this director, man. <laughs> It's a grand ecosystem that's maintained at great personal cost to the people yeah. living in it. And like without this tail section, like this ecosystem would not survive. It would not continue on. It would not be like, <laughs> like th those rich people are not going to get their hands dirty just to keep the train moving. No, no, they won't. So that's why I believe the director went to that horrible, you know, very like fanatic decision of. And I mean, his critique of, I guess, the world is just blow it up, restart. I mean, that's, whew, I hope we don't get to that point. <laughs> I hope we can still fix things, right? Oh, man, it would be nice if we were uh, able to do that. I mean, there, there's still hope, but mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, our own self-interest. Like, what are we really doing this for? Are we doing this for our own glory or are we doing this to really make the world a better place? And, you know, like what people say, like, do we eat the rich? Like, do we get rid of the rich people? Right. Do, do we? But then in our own thirst and quest to be setting up this virtuous world, do we become those crazy power hungry people in our own devices? It's man. I love it. <laughs> Waxing this philosophy, the questions. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I mean, this train is, it's ridiculous, this train. Like, mm -hmm. every single car and compartment to it, there's something new in it. We see the the production facility where uh, the, the protein blocks are made, and it was, oh, I got a, a serious cringe went through my body when Curtis opened that tank and it's just full of bugs that are crushed and <laughs> melted down and placed in the cubes. That was, oh, that was all kinds of ick. Yes. Very Soylent Green-esque. It was, oh my gosh, they're eating bugs, but it makes sense. You know, like how are they going to feed these people? What, what is an easy resource that we can mine <laughs> that's going to be around cockroaches? Gross. And then, well, that's what they're feeding to the tail section. And then the, the people in the front half of the train, they're getting things like chicken, steak. They get sushi twice a year. Mm -hmm. They're probably still, there's probably still ways of making alcohol in this train, oh, which yeah. is, and there's probably cigars too. Like there's means and methods. And <laughs> then to, to 
for some reason, they're just like, nope, the tail section gets none of this. None of it. They they even have like a rave, rave train, a rave cart <laughs> where they, they, yeah, they have like a rave cave and then like a sex cave where they just do tons of drugs. I mean, it's great. You can never escape it, Chris. <laughs> I mean, at least with this rave cave, uh, it actually looks clean. Yes. Like somewhere I wouldn't mind partying, but like it was just... <laughs> It was so terrible to watch because, yes, you just spent another year on this train and nobody's trying to figure out a better way or at least a, a different way of living. They just want to keep going on living on the, this opulent train set. Right. They they reach that acceptance where it's like, well, I'm rich and powerful. I have nothing else to do. So I'm just going to get messed up every day, which to me is like just so depressing. <laughs> Which is funny because then once the security dude or the, yeah, he, uh, the door security guy, he goes and steals everyone's drugs. They all get mad and start chasing after him. That was pretty funny to me. Well, of course, also, too, like there's also drugs on this train. Like the industrial waste from the train is turned into a hallucinogen for everybody to still use and it's it's like it's nice to know that even in the in the apocalypse people are still finding ways to get all messed up on hallucinogens still finding ways to get high it's it's crazy it it really is such a unique and interesting critique of like us culture and human nature and i absolutely uh agree with you the train like the different carts were just such unique presentations of different like diversity culture um, they all like had their own like microcosm of like an ecosystem that they live in. And it, it was so rad just to see as they ventured towards the head of the train, the different parts of societies, you know, it's just it was really, really unique take. Very unique take. I think I would have liked to have seen Curtis take out his aggression on the front section a little more and then make them go live in the tail section for a little bit. Yeah, because they only because he only makes Mason eat the protein block he doesn't make anybody else do and i thought and it was immensely satisfying to watch her you know like take the the tiniest sliver of bites <laughs> with her big old buck teeth but it, i think it, it would have been nice to see you know wilford take a bite of those protein blocks or anybody else living in those front uh, opulent sections take a bite of the bug blocks i agree like making wilford be the next gilliam to live in the back like horribly disfigure him and send him back there. Yeah, you know, I I agree that it was it was somewhat like, ah, oh, I wonder if he's going to do anything, but it was satisfying absolutely when Mason ate the block. I was satisfying when she died. <laughs> Same thing with that teacher. Though it's crazy. I've never seen a pregnant woman number 1 just like pull out an Uzi and just start blowing people away and then also see her get like brutally murdered. And like, I mean, want the death of a pregnant woman. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was, yeah, conflicted about, yo, pregnant lady dying, but then she's also teaching the kids propaganda, and then pulls out a submachine gun and starts shooting people with it. So, like, yeah, you can go. <laughs> you're, we don't, we don't want what child you're about to bear. <laughs> you're good. You're giving teachers a bad name right now. Yeah, that's what I just, dude. I'm gonna, I credit this guy. He just puts the most interesting conflicting characters and roles where you're just like, wow, it's just subverting my expectations and just making me 
question reality, which is lovely. This is, you know, it's, it's art. Um, I freaking loved it. Did you like the big twist, you know, of like everything, like just being all a part of the machine? I mean, I certainly did not see it coming and it just felt like another twist of the knife that is Snowpiercer. Like it's, this movie is so <laughs> brutal. Like every 10 minutes, there's something new and horrible that we see and learn and have to process. And this just was like the final twist of that knife in a, in a metaphorical sense. Absolutely. No, I mean, you're, I totally agree. The action sequences, I think the most brutal one was um, the guys with the hatchets. You know, when they put on the night vision goggles, that's such oh. like a, oh, my God, it's horrible. Why is it that any time somebody boots up night vision goggles, it's never for a good reason? Like the <laughs> only time I've ever seen, like, good guys use night vision goggles was in Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, every other time I see night vision goggles in a movie, it's some, like, serial killer hunting an FBI agent in his basement, or it's this, <laughs> like, creepy guys with machetes that are going to slaughter unarmed people. God, I know. It's so brutal. It's just, I don't know. That's a great question. Night vision goggles were, I, well, I feel like they've really never been utilized for anything but nefarious purposes. Yeah, probably. It's just, oh, man. It's, you knew like something was going to happen after Yona goes, there's a tunnel. Like, what do you mean there's a tunnel? Oh, it's about to get dark. Right. And then, but also at the same point, like when it was New Year's, they all stop beating the crap out of each other, like bleeding, like hatchets dripping with blood. And they're like, Happy New Year. It's like, what? Yeah. And then they have to show all the frozen people that are outside the train who tried escaping all those years ago. God. Yeah. This, this movie is just it's so brutal. Such a brutal movie. I would say uh, if I did have a lens flare for this film. The only lens flare that I can think of is the scene where um, Curtis is trying to shoot the guy. And I can't remember his what his name was. But one of the henchmen of Will Ford that was dressed in the nice suit with the weird comb over. But they were like, there was a sequence where they kept trying to shoot each other through the train windows. And I just felt it went on a little bit too long. Whereas like Curtis seems pretty practical. Where he's like, oh, this isn't working i'm not being i'm not able to shoot through the glass you know so that just went on a little too long for me where i'm like all right let's move on well like yeah in a practical sense and in the character you're thinking of his name is franco the elder yes like, franco has a has a pistol basically a rifle and he's shooting through the glass and curtis is using a machine pistol and there's no way like the the, the two would like make the same amount of damage for for anything like no. Uh, the machine pistol's probably shooting like itty bitty rounds and the the rifle's shooting high velocity rounds. So there's there's no way like they would be doing the same amount of damage. It, it, Curtis just I feel like for all of his ability to change, you know, with the situation and adapt, I'm like, all right, this guy would have realized. <laughs> but that's my only real critique, like the thing that like bothered me at all, which is pretty good. <laughs> uh, how, how about you? Um, you know, I mentioned this uh, just a little while ago, but if I did have a lens flare, it would have to be the the frozen corpses of the people who revolted, went outside and froze to death and how they're 
you know, sneered upon by the the well-to-do people. It's like, look, look what they did. They revolted against Wilford, went outside and froze to death. It's like, uh, that's probably not exactly what happened. You prob- they probably had a disagreement and you pushed them outside based on how you smashed up Andrew's arm a little earlier. So, hey, right? Yeah, I, I felt kind of similar to that where I'm like, how did they get out? Like, was it one of the revolts where they just opened the door and jumped out? But I, yeah, I didn't buy it myself. No, I didn't either. Cool imagery, though. Very cool imagery. Yeah, definitely in reinforcing the whole like, oh, look, there's horrible and awful things outside of the train, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Death awaits those who seek uh. it. Uh, did you, I mean, red shirts in this freaking movie. Oh, my God. So many people die. Um, for me, I would put a red shirt as, I think, Octavia Spencer's character. To me, I just was really bummed when she died um, because, you know, she was this mom that just wanted to get her son back. And then the, the dude, the elder man, just like brutally murders her. And it's like, come on, Franco, why? So to me, I think she was the one that struck me the, wo- the most where I was like, dang it, why? How about you? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with in, a, in that same sequence um, that Tanya – uh, dies the most capable fighter on the train gray is also killed by franco the elder oh so yeah i'm gonna have to yeah yeah i mean dead people uh plenty in this movie but i think gray who really could have you know made a difference in in fighting mm-hmm. is killed by franco and then curtis is left to go on his own from there on yeah I, yeah that's right i was really bummed about that i'm like oh come on <laughs> so close so close the tension with uh gray's death and then they didn't even kill him <laughs> franco somehow survived in his it did the did pulled an undertaker setup move and uh somehow made it back but he did like dude you stopped breathing how are you still alive i have no idea what level that man is on like he he have, he has to be on so many drugs because he gets his ass kicked and somehow continue and it's not like it just subverts the expectations of what we're used to because you think like big burly like jacked people but like franco's like this kind of overweight guy in a suit and he kicks ass so you're like all right this guy he's a survivor it's like all right we're rolling with uh, franco the elder as you know the the big baddie of this movie <laughs> all right he is the bane of curtis's existence apparently but he does get his comeuppets, which is very satisfying. I will say the deaths of the certain people, like the the evil people in this film, is so satisfying. It would have been nice to see Mason's death as opposed to it being off screen or the um, the girl who uh, took away the kids in the beginning of the movie. I would have liked to seen her like get her head chopped off or something. Oh, yeah, that is. Yes, I guess Wilford's. Uh, concubine <laughs> i don't know what she was like personal assistant daughter I, concubine i mean maybe a combination of several of those things but still like that relationship is unclear <laughs> very yes very much so very much so but uh yeah it was very she she would have been it would have been nicer to see her die other than explode but it is <laughs> it is it is what it is did you have anyone who's not doing their job Oh, I've talked about my vitriol of this person 
throughout uh, this episode, but that ridiculous teacher spewing <laughs> nonsense and just at the at the at the control of other people, the influencers on this train, telling her to straight up lie to these children and feed them propaganda and crap about their existence was oh so infuriating. Oh yeah, God, it's like you watch it and go, everything you said is wrong. <laughs> Yeah, like that moment in was it um Billy Madison where the 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 uh, was it the moderator of the game show is like everything you just said was incorrect. You could not be more wrong about anything you just said. Mm-hmm. And you see it, and it's you know it's a great depiction of uh, indoctrination, you know, at a young age, and like how it starts, and you know how cultures and families and like we all do it in some regards, in some capacity, but you know to this extreme level of singing songs is it's pretty wild it's like oh my gosh this is uncomfortable <laughs> i hope my children aren't like this no me neither definitely just uh well are you ready for the latest edition in this week in toxic fandom though absolutely absolutely lay it on me uh i had to pick this one cuz it's actually calling out another uh a post in the IMDb goof section. Okay. <laughs> and I, I was just laughing when I read this. So, <clears throat> if all life became extinct, there should be no polar bear for y- for Yona and Timmy to spot. <laughs> this scene was intentional in order to show that life outside the train was not extinct after all. The original poster clearly missed the point of the <laughs> ending. <laughs> the original poster? <laughs> This person. So somebody comment. I, I so somebody commented that the the whole if life were extinct there'd be no polar bears thing blah 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 and then somebody else commented saying like uh you missed the point um so yeah <laughs> that's amazing I love it I absolutely love it I love it they got salty I saw another one on there where they someone got pissed because uh, Wilford told. Curtis, he was the first person to walk the whole train, but it was actually Wilford's assistant walked the whole train. <laughs> and a bunch of people agreed, like 220-something people agreed to it. Like, yeah, that is correct. <laughs> I think he's probably referencing you're the first person to walk from the, who's been primarily in the tail section to walk all the way to the front of the train. I think that's what Wilford is referencing uh, towards there. <laughs> Uh, some people you know they just take it literally (laughs) you can't please everybody no you cannot no film is perfect (laughs) so how did this film do i mean you were saying that no film is perfect but this film got uh pretty close to it i mean it's got a 94 percent on rotten tomatoes Mm -hmm. 84 on metacritic so and it actually there is uh no entry for it on cinema score but i mean pretty close in those two online rankings so i would say yeah people are in a general consensus about snowpiercer mm-hmm. absolutely i mean people seem to love it and i know it doubled its budget it was like 40 million budget it grossed 86 million um i feel like i don't know like it's just seems seems so low to me you know because of how great this film is but maybe it's because like people saw it and were like what is this is this a weird like action film so they couldn't like understand i don't know 
I mean, we'll we'll get into the the numbers a little bit more and why like it seems it doesn't seem like it made a lot of money, but in in actuality, it kind of did because you're right. I mean, it, it grossed a, a, about eighty and a half million dollars and wasn't big in the U.S. I certainly don't remember this movie being heavily marketed when it was out, but no. it made nearly sixty million dollars in South Korea alone, Heck which is yeah. astonishing to me, and it's. I think a lot of that has to do with Bong Joo-ho. Like, he is probably the biggest director in South Korea. Like, he could make a documentary about Old Spice deodorant. It would probably be the highest grossing <laughs> documentary ever released in South Korea. Because he would make it amazing is what he would do. <laughs> You're right. That's funny. Yeah, he's so talented. So I, I totally agree. I mean, this got like a myriad of awards, like tons of different, none of like the major ones, you know, like no Golden Globes or anything, but a bunch of indie awards. And it did get a Saturn, uh, I believe a Saturn nomination for Blockbuster and or Best Action and Best Adventure Film. Didn't win, but there's that. It didn't win, and I thought it was a bit of a disrespect to not even nominate it for any of the sci-fi categories, but... Totally agree. That... But hey, I don't pick the Saturn nominations, even though they hand them out like Skittles. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I think it just this is like one of those films where it's like, you know, it came out middle July. So it's like it's a good film. But, you know, unfortunately, with the Oscars and the major awards, unless it like grosses a bunch, has a really big name, you know, it's not going to last unless it gets to Oscar season. So. It's a bummer. It's a real bummer. Well, it's a, it's a bummer. I mean, it was almost a near bummer. We were able to see this version of the movie now because that almost wasn't the case. Because I don't know if you saw this, but in my research, I found out that uh, the Weinstein Company, and yes, those Weinsteins, this was before <laughs> everybody found out that uh, at least half of them were bastards. Um <laughs> They acquired the distribution rights in in North America and in parts overseas. And Harvey, the eternal bastard we're speaking of, <laughs> he wanted about a half hour of the movie cut out for uh, for audiences. And what the Bung Joo Ho did he did do that? He did cut out the requested amount of time, and it was screened for test audiences. But it did it performed poorly, and. So what Bong Joo-ho did was he took his original cut, showed it to a test audiences, and it scored way higher than the uh, edited version ever could. Okay. And this was that was the cut that was sent to theaters, and but it was released under uh, the Weinstein Company's like indie art house uh, banner. It, I mean, because you know Harvey's you know a bastard. He didn't want to attach his name to something that was going to be like this, you know, especially since he didn't have a hand in how it looked or how it was going to be received. And because it was doing so well in the Indian art house films that that's how it got a wider release because it was getting Bong Joon-ho's original cut was getting so much press. Wow. That bastard. <laughs> I mean, it's not the first time we've had something like this happen. I mean, listen to our previous episode on Brazil and the the surreptitiousness that Terry Gilliam got up to to get his original cut in theaters. But like this, this just seems like like Harvey Weinstein posturing because he's 
you know, disrespecting Bong Joon-ho and his abilities. It's like, well, you're a Korean director. You don't know anything about American audiences, so cut all this out. And then turns out that Bong Joon-ho is like almost like a like the Steve Jobs of cinema. Yeah, he's master class. Because I I read that um, when they were trying to get Ed Harris into the film, uh, which actually I guess they considered Dustin Hoffman too, which is crazy, but. When they got for Ed Harris to be sold on it, he watched all of uh, Banju Ho's Korean films, and he was like, "Dude, this guy's incredible. I'm all in." So maybe just Weinstein, I don't know. He wanted to have some control on this guy's success and his career, but no, thank you, Banju Ho, for releasing your actual. You know, thank God, because I couldn't even imagine. Like every bit of this film is pretty much needed. Like. If they cut it somehow, it just wouldn't flow, in my opinion. Yeah, and it it has a very unique flow to it. I mean, it's just over two hours in length. So, yeah, like, and, and it's not like he was asking to cut 25 minutes out of a four-hour long movie. Yeah. You're asking to cut 25% of a film that's already pretty short enough. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a huge amount of time. <laughs> Screw you, Harvey. Screw you. <laughs> oh god did and go for before we move on like i think we also have to mention the fact that this now lives on in some small way on the small screen like this is now a television series yeah that's right it's i think it's um it's like uh they're showing like it's almost like prequel-esque what happened before the curtis revolution I mean, yeah, it's right now it's on TNT. I mean, and at the time we're recording this, they just started uh, the second season of the show. Uh, excuse me, the third season of the show. So it is going it is going on starring Jennifer Connelly and David Diggs uh, from famously from uh, the Hamilton Broadway musical. So, yeah, like this, uh, this continues on And mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's not a sequel like you like you were saying, Sean, it's it's more of a prequel pre Curtis revolution. But it, it's cool to see that this this franchise and this property live on in some way. I totally agree with you because it's, it's got so much interest, interesting lore to it. A lot of questions. So I haven't watched it myself. I don't, so I can't say, but hopefully it's good. If you got a third season. I mean, I rarely have time to like sit down and watch a network television show (laughs) these days, but, uh, but I mean, it's getting good reviews and yeah. And if it's, if it got greenlit for a third season and, and more then it's got to be doing pretty well. I hope so. Sweet. Well, rock on. That is the legacy for Snowpiercer. (laughs) My good sir. Uh, But would you like to get into our uh, rating? Absolutely. Let's rate Snowpiercer. And we have a unique scale for the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast when we rate our films of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. Uh, I'll lead us off. I'll get us going. Um, <laughs> I think I think Snowpiercer does a great job of not giving away the farm. Um, you know, we get a brief prologue. We set up the world. And from there, the film rolls on. We see Curtis, Edgar, Gilliam organizing um, this revolution and we get that inciting event at the beginning of the film where the children are taken away and have to has to kickstart this revolution and I think Chris Evans man he does not get enough credit as an actor because he is absolutely captivating in this movie that that hor- horrifying monologue 
at the end of the film where you were saying like, oh, I know babies taste the best and really takes on this Moses like character as a reluctant hero and is well placed in the action. Like he holds his own. He goes through tremendous ups, tremendous downs in this film. And he's he's fantastic. I would like to see Chris Evans win an Oscar at some point in his career. And it's a great commentary on you know, issues that we're struggling with now as a society with class struggles and climate change. And, but it doesn't feel too preachy. Like we can hop into this film without feeling like we're being, you know, lectured at. And I think it's a very, it's a great sci-fi film, but I also think it's a very approachable sci-fi film. And for those reasons, I'm going to call this a wood host a viewing party for Snowpiercer. Hey, <laughs> sweet fantastic review my good sir uh what about you sean what uh what marks do you give to snowpiercer um for snowpiercer i'm gonna agree with you i would totally host a viewing party for this film it's it's um it's one that i saw in theaters when it came out um loved it then always have had high remarks for it as i've gotten older and more um, educated into different things like sociology psychology etc um, this film just continues to peel back like an onion for me. And I'm able to, um, kind of dive in and learn more and about the characters and see their motivations. And absolutely the director's film choices from cinematography, the film feeling like a rushing train, the different carts, everything you can peel back. And like, this is a film where, in my opinion, you could do a film study on it and teach about it in class. Um, cause it's, it's really just, it's a wonderful work of art, great themes, doesn't beat you over the head. Like you said, you can take something away and it makes you feel, and it's just, it's just, it's just one of those counter Hollywood films that it's just something it's fresh. It's a fresh take, fresh filmmaking. And absolutely all the actors are great. Chris Evans is wonderful in this film. This is one, when I saw this, I was like, this guy once he gets past Avengers and does something else, as much as you know, he's good as uh, as he was in the Avengers, he's gonna have a great career, and I hope he he takes more challenging roles and things like this because he's he's a hell of an actor. So, kudos to the director, you are the man, and uh, I love it. I love this film. So rock on. I will revisit this film for sure. Excellent. So we've got high marks from Snowpiercer all around. I know I certainly have homework to do. I'm gonna be going. Uh, watching Parasite sometime soon now that I'm a bit more familiar with Bong Joon-ho's work. So uh, I'm glad we could Sweet. watch this movie for our project. Heck yeah, man. <laughs> he's great. He's going to be, I feel he's going to be one of those next Christopher Nolan-esque directors, or he already is. So yeah, high remarks. I love doing this with you, man. So I will let you, Chris, unveil because Major Samantha is taking a change. She's going back in time. Yes, we teased about this a little uh, while ago, but this is this is the year 2022. We're going to play around with the format of the show a little bit, and we're going to kick off what we're calling our theme months uh, for right now. And we're going to start our first one with what we're calling 80s schlocky science fiction month. <laughs> and 
Sean's first choice for uh, for uh, the month of uh, schlocky sci-fi was 1984's Dune, Ooh. directed by David Lynch. So I'm I've never seen this movie. I've, it's legendarily bad, according to the critics. But uh, <laughs> hopefully, we can try and redeem uh, the original Dune a little bit. So I'm excited to watch that. Rock on! I am so pumped to do 80 schlocky films with you, my man. It's gonna be fun. I hope. <laughs> Oh yeah, we're gonna have a fun time. Uh, we'll we'll clue you in as to the movie following Dune at the end of that episode. But rest assured, we got several fun ones, several doozies uh, lined up for you. So, Sean, always a pleasure, my friend. Right back at you, sir. You are the man. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna take us out here. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star review. You can also leave us a five star review now on Spotify. That will really help drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We're across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your audio. Then go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForcefedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of the social media. And so for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. 